Hello, Malcolm here with another teaching class for the Thames Valley Churches of Christ. This is for September 2023, and the two classes are by Andy Bawachi. They are from the Book of Ephesians, and they're on the topics of unity and maturity, two critical topics for Christians and for church groups. This class is designed to be used in our smaller groups for uh, discussion, and I hope you find them useful. I would recommend that you uh, read through the book of Ephesians beforehand, or at least skim it. That will give you some great background for Andy's points. Andy will finish this class with some questions on unity. That's today's topic. And I'll come back at the end to reiterate those and add a couple of comments. But for now, let's turn it over to Andy Boachi. Hello and welcome to this short series on Ephesians and I hope it is something which really helps you develop an understanding of Christian spirituality which is really uh, one of its uh, key themes and key messages. Ephesians is one of the most enigmatic and powerful and dazzling, uh, uplifting uh, pieces of religious literature I think have ever been written. The way it combines the earthly with the cosmic is unparalleled, really, in the New Testament. Its supernatural view of the church, its profound vision of unity, its lofty Christology, that is, its uh, elevated portrait of the uh, divinity of Jesus, its radical ethical program, its portrait of the non-material spiritual world of powers and forces of darkness. But like few other documents uh, of the New Testament map out this credible landscape of God-centered discipleship. The eminent Catholic scholar uh, Raymond Brown claimed that among Pauline writings, only Romans can match Ephesians as a candidate for exercising the most influence on Christian thought and spirituality. The English Romantic poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge uh, once described uh, Ephesians as the divinest composition of man. And F.F. Bruce, formerly head of department at my own university in Manchester, regarded it as the quintessence of Paulinism, because uh, in it, a large measure sums up the leading themes of the Pauline letters and sets forth the cosmic implications of Paul's ministry as apostle to the Gentiles. And I don't think these accolades even do enough justice to Ephesians, uh, which is a letter, it's a sermon, it's an exhortative tract and a compendium of spirituality all rolled into this one really quite compact piece. There are several themes uh, which emerge from its pages. Uh, two of the most significant, I think, for a, a contemporary context uh, are unity and spiritual maturity. And those are the two ideas I want to cover in these uh, two classes. So we'll think in this first uh, class about unity, um, about which the letter has far more to say than we can cover in one class. Well, I do want to lay the foundation, which hopefully will be a basis for your discussions within your groups. Straight away, uh, in the uh, opening lengthy doxology of Ephesians, uh, we read this in Ephesians uh, 1, 9 through 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he set forth in him, regarding his plan of the fullness of the times, to bring all things together in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. This is really a unique passage in all of Paul's writings. In many ways, it's a unique passage in the entire New Testament corpus. The author describes God's will, which will reach its fulfillment at the fullness of times, as the bringing together of all things in Christ. It's interesting that in the Greek philosophical tradition, especially those writing before Socrates, there was a near obsession with this question of what was often called the one and the many. 
Um, what was the origin of all things? How do the individual components of the physical universe come to exist as discrete units? And did they come from uh, an original unified source? And there were all sorts of theories about whether the original source was water uh, or was it fire, as was claimed by the philosopher Heraclitus? Uh, or, or what was it? What was the origin of, uh, of all discrete units of material reality? Well, the author of Ephesians isn't concerned with the uh, particular question in a philosophical sense. But in terms of his eschatology, that is, his view of the end times, what he says here in Ephesians 1, 9 through 10 is that in the fullness of times, that all things, all material reality will become a unity in Christ. And just to so slightly complicate matters, the um, word that the author uses, which is translated in many of your texts as summed up or bring together, um, can mean uh, repeat, it can mean recapitulate, it can mean sum up, um, it can even mean add together in a sort of mathematical sense. Uh, the only other use of the term is in Romans 13.9. That's the only other use of the term in the New Testament, uh, where Paul is writing that or all the uh, commands of the Ten Commandments and any other commandment like it can be summed up, brought together, brought under one title uh, in the command to love one's neighbour as yourself. But the other thing that we're told in Ephesians 1.9 is that this great enterprise by which God will bring together all things ultimately in Christ is a mystery, using the Greek word mysterion, which appears six times in the book of Ephesians. Now, this is interesting for a number of reasons. Uh, the key reason, I think, lies in these other uses of the term mystery. Now, it's my theory, I won't go into all, all the ins and outs of it, that this initial use of mystery in one nine is the key to understanding every other reference to mystery. We'll think about just a, a couple of them to understand uh, what Paul is doing here. In Ephesians 3, he perhaps gives the most explicit account of what the mystery is. This is what we read in Ephesians 3, 1 through 7. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the administration of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before briefly. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to mankind, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. So here we have it. Here's a definition of what this great mystery is. The mystery is how Gentiles and Israel will together become fellow members of God's family, fellow members of the body. Uh, and this mystery, which was hidden for ages, has now been revealed uh, to the apostolic entourage around the Apostle Paul. Now, in older scholarship in Ephesians, commentators wondered if all six occurrences of the phrase mystery uh, pointed to the same mystery, or if we had six different mysteries being talked about. Virtually everyone who comments on uh, Ephesians these days accepts that there is one fundamental mystery at the heart of Ephesians, which is expressed uh, in different ways uh, in the uh, different uh, occurrences of it through the letter. 
But here in Ephesians 3, it's laid out in explicit fashion. The mystery is related to how Israel and the Gentiles become one people. And more specifically, what is the role that Christ plays in this great unification enterprise? Indeed, in Ephesians 2, the mystery is somewhat expanded. It's, it's, it's added to. Um, and we get a glimpse here of the mysterious nature of how Jew and Gentile become one. And this is another fairly unique Pauline portrait. We read this in Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. But now in Christ, you who were previously far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the hostility, which is the law composed of commandments expressed in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new person, in this way establishing peace, that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having it put to death hostility. In Ephesians, the unity of Jew and Gentile is predicated upon the crucifixion of Jesus as the flashpoint by which the very hostility which kept them as separate groups is somehow neutralized. What the author seems to be describing by this dividing war between the two groups in some way should be understood as the law of Moses. So having fulfilled its purpose in Christ, the law no longer stands as a, um, a, a partitioning entity. Jew and Gentile now come together in this unprecedented spiritual unity, and this is the people of God. So this appears to be what's happening. At the end of time, all things will be brought together in Christ. That's Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. But however, because of Christ, and particularly because of Christ's resurrection, that great divine enterprise of bringing everything together has already begun in the now time by the bringing together of Jew and Gentile. This is the beginning of the bringing of all things together. Now think about this. All people groups in the ancient world pretty much divided the world into us and everyone else. And the Jews were no different. That's why we have this term Jew and Gentile. There's Jews, elective Israel, and every other nation and person on the earth, the Gentiles, the rest of them. So here we see those two parts of um, the uh, human family being brought together. It's the beginning of the process by which all things will ultimately become reality in Christ. But not only is the bringing together of Jew and Gentile evidence that this great unification is underway, but the coming together of Christ and the church is also evidence that the great unification has indeed begun. And it's summed up in this puzzling yet profound metaphor in Ephesians 5, all about marriage. The first section of Ephesians 5 ends um, in 5.21 with this enigmatic challenge, Ephesians 5.21. Subject yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. The author then presents an example of what it means to subject yourselves to one another in Christ in the example of marriage. And yes, make no mistake about it, Ephesians 5.22-33 is about mutual submission. It's not about wives submitting to husbands, it's about spouses submitting to one another as uh, an image of Jesus and the church submitting to one another. Perhaps if we had more time, we could unpack the marital issues more fully. For now, what's critical is that towards the end of the chapter, Paul says that even though he's been describing the relationship between husband and wife, 
This is actually a metaphorical use. Uh, all along, he's been really talking about Jesus and the church. This is what we read in Ephesians 5, 28 uh, to 32. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are parts of the body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So then the oneness that results from the mutual submission of husband and wife is really a portrait of that oneness that exists between Christ and the believing assembly on the basis of their mutual submission. In Ephesians 5.2, Christ submits to the church by becoming a, quote, offering and sacrifice, as Ephesians 5.2. And how does the church submit to Jesus? Well, in Ephesians 5.1, by becoming imitators of God. So once more, then, we see evidence that this great cosmic reconciliation outlined in Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, is actually underway in the now time by the bringing together of Christ and church, by the bringing together of Jew and Gentile. So what ought we uh, take um, uh, from these ideas? And how might these ideas inform our discipleship when thinking about unity? Well, the first thing I think is that we should acknowledge that true unity is divinely created. We could easily establish a false unity um, with the enforcement of man-made rules and regulations. But that just leads to sameness, conformity, robotic um, behaviours which just kind of make us alike by us all doing the same things. But that's not unity. The repeated commands for truth in Ephesians, and truth is an important sub-theme in Ephesians, appears in 113, 415, 421. 424, 425, uh, 59, and 6.14, those repeated commands for truth, undergird the need for honesty in the establishment of unity. The second corollary of uh, these two ideas is that it's God's will that his people are unified, but that unity must be based on truth. If, you're, if a group is disunified and it's honest about its disunity, well, then at least you can challenge it and you can deal with it. But when you have a dishonest unity, when, the, when you claim to be unified just because a bunch of rules get you to do the same thing, um, then that will simply confuse people. The third thing I would say is that we ought to consider how people groups uh, are generally divided uh, in the world, us and, and them. As I said, the Jews were no different. It was the Jews and every other nation on earth. But it was never God's intention that there should be a hierarchy of human value. In bringing the two groups together to make one, we should perhaps reflect on other ways in which the world is divided and think about how they can become one. Here are some reflection questions I want to leave you with in view of this reading of Unity in Ephesians. Firstly, how might we use our gifts to nurture the unity that God has created? In what sense do you think does real unity require honesty? What is the place of honesty of truth in the establishment of unity? And how might, might we uh, how might we navigate the causes of this unity in our communities? Have a think through those things. Go over the passages, go over my reading, uh, come up with some answers. Uh, and I hope this will help you engage with Ephesians, thinking through the theme of unity. Thank you, Andy. Let me just go over those questions one more time so that we can have good discussion in our groups. Firstly, how might our gifts be useful to nurture the unity that God has created? 
What's your part of mine with the gifts that we bring to our local group? Secondly, what is the place of honesty in unity? What does it mean to be honest with one another in Christ? And how does that help our unity? And thirdly, how might we navigate the causes of disunity in our communities? Perhaps it's worthwhile having a discussion about what could cause disunity in your local group. And then what would you do when that comes up? Or if there's something even current right now that's a challenge, how might what you've learned from Ephesians help with that? If you've got any questions, drop me a line. Thanks again to Andy. And next time, the class will be on the topic of maturity. Till then, take care and God bless.